I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And uh, if you didn't get a study guide, maybe uh, someone could help uh, pass a few of those out. And let me say a word, by the way, Carissa, I led you astray. I handed you the wrong first page. And so we're actually missing number three in our study guide, but that's my fault. And we'll, we'll, we'll get it fixed, but you may want to have this in front of you this morning as we take a look at it. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, yeah, just lift your hand up till somebody puts one in your hand and we'll, we'll get one to you. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was preaching and I made a statement that was um, somewhat extempore. But as it came out of my mouth and, and I heard it kind of bang around the room, it was like God uh, spoke to my heart and said, this is for you, for me. And uh, sometimes that happens when I'm preaching. God speaks to me. And the statement that I made was that God has not called me to build a big church, but to build big Christians. That's biblically true. It's true because Jesus said, I will build my church. And God does not call any human being to build his church. That's his responsibility. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But he does call apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry that we might grow up in Jesus Christ to mature men and women in Christ. And so that is a responsibility that is delegated by Christ to, to, to people within the body of Christ to help others grow up in Him. And as I began to think about the, the impact to my spirit of those words, it was like God was renewing in me a sense of my awareness of what it is He wants me to be doing. And that is to, to provide the teaching and the training and the example and the assistance to equip the saints for the work of ministry that we might all grow up in Jesus Christ. To mature men and women who love the Lord and are cemented together in His body by love. And a part of that is, is the, the preaching of the Word of God that builds into our lives the truths that bring us closer into our walk with Jesus Christ and give to us the foundation of understanding that we might walk in Him. Friends, we have to have our minds renewed and transformed by the truth in order to be able to, to grow in Jesus Christ. If God doesn't change your mind about things, then you kind of stay lost in your own thinking. You stay lost in yourself. So, Paul says in Romans that it's through the renewing of our minds that we are transformed. And a part of growing up in Christ is learning to think the way God thinks. To think rightly or to think according to the Scriptures. Now, last week, I told you something very important. And that is that knowledge in isolation by itself only builds arrogance. It only puffs up. 
But Paul said the goal of our instruction is love. We're after something. As we teach, the objective is to deepen your love life with God and with one another. The goal of our instruction is love. It ought to to make us different people in our behavior as we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as I come to the topic and what uh, the Lord has put on my heart for the next few weeks, is to, to remind us of some of the essential truths of the Gospel, the foundations of our faith. To remind us of the importance of understanding and embracing those truths. But my goal is not simply to make you smarter. My goal is to bring you into a deeper relationship of love with Jesus Christ and to deepen your love for one another. If, if it doesn't do that for you, then it's just me talking to you in our heads. It's just sharing knowledge. But the goal of the instruction is to love. A few weeks ago, some of you went outside and found on your car a booklet. That booklet is being left on cars in evangelical and Protestant churches around our community. And I'm not sure who's distributing it, although I'm going to go around, uh, I think, this next week and ask if I can have more copies until I find the church that has them. And, and then I'm going to get a few more copies. And basically what the booklet is, is a booklet that says, the Bible supports the, the, the teachings of the Catholic Church. And uh, that was left around. And I wouldn't have thought anything of it except that it's about a hundred and something pages long. And uh, some of you who got it, I have gotten some feedback that uh, it was very disturbing. In fact, it caused some confusion. And uh, as I thought about that, I thought, man, I better read this thing. So I started reading it. And I can see the problem. I can see the confusion and the frustration. And uh, it also clarified for me, I think, more than anything else in the last 25 years, it clarified for me, the real spiritual battles that we face in our community. Because the heart of the gospel is at stake in understanding the distinctions of biblical truth in distinction to man-made religion. And if I were to begin at the beginning with what is the, what is the most foundational truth of the Bible? What is the most important message of the Bible? If I could take any message that, that the Bible proclaims in all of systematic theology or all of biblical teaching and boil it down to the one thing that is the, the absolute essence of the message of the Scriptures, it is that the Gospel of Jesus Christ is justification by faith. That in Jesus Christ, through faith, we can be completely and totally delivered from our sin, fully forgiven, completely cleansed, and stand in the presence of God, sinless and holy in the righteousness of Jesus Christ forever on the basis of faith alone plus nothing. That is the most essential and important message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
when Paul was about to write the book of Romans and he was opening his introductions and those first comments in chapter 1, he comes to that all-important, pivotal thesis statement that you heard me preach about however long ago it was when we were going through Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for, to the Greek, because in it, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That is the message, that is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's an interesting teaching, and, and I'm really not trying to be controversial this morning, but I, I'm, I, I'm wanting to underscore the truth, because what many Roman Catholics practice, many Protestants secretly think is true. Okay? Did you hear me? I'm going to explain it, but listen. What many Roman Catholics practice, many Protestants secretly believe is true. And here's the, here's the essence of that message. Jesus erases my sin and gives me a new slate. And by golly, I better make the best of it and live good. Or God is going to smack me down big. I've gotten a fresh start, so I had better do a good job. Many Protestant and Evangelical Christians, in their heart of hearts, believe that if they don't do good for God, they're going to get the smackdown. And they better work hard, and, and if they do something wrong, they're in trouble until they have a chance to, to confess and get it right. And they live in fear of judgment in this strained relationship with God because they perceive Him as some great watchdog in the sky with a big bat that's going to clobber them the minute they step out of line. And they live in fear because underlying their hope in Christ is the suspicion that it's still up to them to do the best they can or they're going to be in trouble. In the, in the Catholic Church and in that booklet, which by the way blatantly and clearly said, Justification is not by faith alone, and there is no eternal security. Blatantly said it, and then 16 to 20 pages of proof to back up the statement. In October 31, 1517, a young German monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed on the church door at Wittenberg, 95 theses. They were statements, grievances, objections to the sale of indulgences by area priests that he felt were abusing the truth of the Scripture. 
And he had no intention of creating a rebellion that started a Protestant movement. His goal was to bring reform to what at the time he believed was the true church of Jesus Christ, the church of Rome. And he wanted to bring reform. Because here's what was happening. The, the Catholic Church teaches that baptism removes original sin and gives you a fresh start. But then you must fill up the righteousness of your life by doing good works and availing yourself of the means of grace, the sacraments, including the Eucharist, the, the what we call the Lord's Supper, and the confessional, and other means of grace. And if you sin, you have to pay for that sin. You'll go to heaven because of Christ's atonement, but you have to pay for the sins that you commit. And so you have to go to confession and confess your sins, and you're given penance that you can do. And when you do the penance, you will be uh, forgiven of the sin, but you still have to pay for the guilt of it, and you do that in purgatory. Every Christian who dies without filling up their cup full of righteousness by the good works of their life will end up in purgatory, paying for the rest of their sins that need to be removed and cleansing their soul. And after they've spent... Uh, several thousand years in purgatory, then they will be able to move on to heaven. But it's after they burn off the dross of their lives. Now, wouldn't you like to know, if that was what you were taught from infancy, wouldn't you like to know if there was a way to bypass some of that purgatory stuff? Because uh, that's not pleasant. You're burning in purgatory. You're burning off dross. So even though you do get heaven eventually, you've got this penalty. And so the Catholic Church came up with indulgences. And what an indulgence did was you could have a partial indulgence or a plenary indulgence. A partial indulgence whittled off a few hundred or a few thousand years of purgatory. A plenary indulgence eliminated purgatory altogether. So that the minute you died, if you had a plenary indulgence, you would go immediately to heaven because you had already paid for with the indulgence of the priest and the church, you had already paid for your sin. And so you could go right on into heaven. Well, you can imagine what human beings would do with a teaching like that, can't you? I mean, just think for a moment, the logical place where that goes. Let's see. I can sin and buy an indulgence and get to heaven immediately, and I can still do whatever I want to do. In fact, I can sin all I want. As long as I buy an indulgence... For every major sin, I can do anything I please. What a deal. I can live however I want to in this world and still go immediately to heaven and bypass purgatory. Well, not only did the people figure that out, but the priests figured that out. 
And what the priests figured out was, we can get rich off of this. We can sell these indulgences. People will get out of purgatory and we'll get wealthy. And so they were literally doing that. They were selling indulgences for money. Pay your money, get your indulgence, get out of purgatory. It's like a get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly. And Martin Luther saw the horrible debauchery that that was. And, and, and as a young monk, it grieved his spirit. And he looked at what this was causing in the lives of the people, and he said, we have got to do something about this. And he railed against the, the teaching of indulgences and the sale of indulgences and sought to bring reform, and what it got him was kicked out. And he got excommunicated. And the Protestant Reformation was born. And as Luther began to explore the Scriptures and study the Scriptures, to come to an understanding of the message of atonement and forgiveness and the doctrines of grace, what Luther discovered in the Bible and brought to light was this, justification before a holy God comes on the basis of faith alone plus nothing. And faith in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross completely absolves me of the guilt and the penalty of all my sin and immediately grants me right standing in the presence of God forever. And the doctrine of justification by faith was rediscovered, not invented, but rediscovered in an age of darkness as God the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of this monk by the name of Martin Luther. And he began to preach the doctrine of grace. And as a result, the Protestant Reformation was born. Did you know that in the year 2000, Pope John Paul II reinstated indulgences? And did you know that in this year, the year of St. Paul, the Catholic Church is advertising that indulgences are available again? You can't buy them because the church in 1567 outlawed the sale of indulgences, but you can make charitable contributions and do good works and be granted indulgences. And so today, if you're a Roman Catholic, you can go to the priest and you can obtain an indulgence that will either whittle off your years in purgatory or eliminate them altogether until you sin the next time. And then you can go buy another indulgence. I don't, did I say buy? You can go make a charitable contribution and do good works and get another indulgence. New York Times, February 9th, 2009. You can go online and read the article or the excerpt that I've printed in your study guide. Friends, I want to share with you this morning the fundamental truth of justification by faith. And, and, I, and I want you to follow me because if you understand this message, if you really get it, not only will you not fall into the error 
But you will not fall into the secret error of Protestants and evangelicals who live in bondage to the law because they've never understood grace. That we are freed in Jesus Christ. What are the underlying principles that necessitate justification by faith? You know, the first thing that we have to understand as human beings, as we come to understand the grace of God, the first thing we have to deal with is the fact that we are totally depraved people. What do I mean by that? I mean that in us there is nothing good in a moral sense. That before a holy God, we are big zeros. Now, I did not say that we do not have personal worth and value. We are made in the image of God. We have great worth. We have an an everlasting soul. We will live forever somewhere because God made us to do that. And He crafted us in His own image and invested in us uh, uh, the sense of His nature. So that we might have a mind and will and emotions and be thinking, feeling, loving human beings. He made us like Himself in so many respects, in His likeness. And we have great personal worth. But because of the sin of Adam and Eve that has been spread to the whole human race, we are morally bankrupt. And because sin is such a a deep and and horrible pollution of the very uh, roots of our heart. Jeremiah says, The heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That we are so deeply depraved that it is impossible for us to purely do any good work that has eternal significance in the presence of God because of our moral depravity. And we have to come to the awareness that before a holy God, we are moral zeros. We have nothing to commend ourselves with. And that we cannot produce good works because all of our effort comes from a polluted stream. Isaiah said, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. Do you realize that when he's speaking of that, he's talking about the best we have to offer. All of our righteousness. In other words, the best we can produce is like a stinking, odious, filthy rag in the nostrils of a holy God. He cannot bear to look upon the iniquity of our souls. We are blighted with sin and everything we do is polluted by its stench. Friends, we cannot produce good works that will lead us to salvation. And we cannot produce good works after we're saved that will ensure our salvation. Because in and of ourselves, we are moral zeros. The Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans chapter 7, For I know, this is after he's born again, For I know that is in my flesh, The essence of who I am dwells nothing good. There is nothing good in me. There is nothing that I can do to commend myself to God. We need to understand that. It will take a great deal of 
uh, of personal grief away from us in a sense if we can, you know, some people, you ever hear them say, oh, I can't believe I did that. Well, why not? Why do you find it so hard to believe that you were so rotten? You are rotten. Why is that so difficult? Oh, I can't believe I said that. Well, that's what you would say every time if you didn't have God working in your heart. That's who you are. That's what you really are. Oh, I can't believe I had that thought. Why why does that surprise you? That's where your mind is apart from Jesus. You see, Paul said, that's who I am without Him. And there's nothing good in me. And there's nothing that I can produce that that will be acceptable to God. To really understand justification by faith, we have to begin with an understanding that we are so morally defunct that we have nothing to offer toward our goodness. The second thing that we need to realize is, why did God give the law? Why did God bother throughout all the Scripture to give us all these things? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, you know, uh, this is what you have to do, don't do this, do this. Why did God give the law throughout all the Scriptures? The reason that God gave the law was not to make us holy. The reason God gave the law was to reveal His character and to show us how unlike Him we really are. All the teaching of the Scripture that reveal the moral righteousness of God is intended to show us the character of God and to prove to us how unlike Him we are. The law was never intended to be an instrument of righteousness it actually became an instrument of condemnation. And if you go back to Exodus, you'll find a very interesting thing. It only takes a portion of Exodus in chapter 20 to give the Ten Commandments. And it takes three and a half more books to explain what to do when you break them. All the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is consumed with the remedy when you fail. Because God knew they would fail. When you sin, bring this to the priest, bring this to the temple, bring this to the... Because you're going to fail. And every failure resulted in the bringing of a sin offering that ended up in a bloody mess on an altar to remind them that the wages of sin is death and that blood sacrifice is required. And and that was intended to teach them over 1,500 years. What's the lesson from Moses until Jesus? What is the lesson? I can't keep the law. And it takes blood to cleanse me. I cannot keep the law. I'm always here at the temple. I've always got to bring a sacrifice. Oh, that there would be a permanent solution. For 1,500 years, God tried to educate His people that they would be ready for their Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would show up on the scene, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world. Because the blood of bulls and goats 
could never do it. We need to recognize the permanent condition of man apart from Christ is moral bankruptcy. And the purpose of the law before and after salvation is to reveal the character of God. Always. That is always the goal. And the only way the law can ever be kept is by God Himself. I've got more to say about that in another message. I'm not going to try to say it all this morning. But we need to realize the law was never meant to be kept. It was meant to expose our sin. It's our schoolmaster, our tutor that brings us to Christ. Now, the part that's missing in your study guide, and I apologize for this, but it's number three, and and we'll get it straightened out. Next week, you'll have a a complete one. We had copier trouble, and everything went wrong, and it's been a crazy week, and Carissa graciously went in there between services and tried to run them off, and I gave her the wrong sheet. So next week, we'll get the whole thing together. But here's point three. God is a holy God who dwells in unapproachable light. And he cannot tolerate sin at any level. There are no mortal or venial sins. Do do you know the difference in that teaching? Mortal sin is a sin that will send you to hell. And a venial sin is a sin that gets you in trouble, but it doesn't, you don't lose your salvation over it. Okay, if you die before confession and penance with mortal sin according to the doctrines of the Catholic Church, if you die in a mortal sin, you will go to hell at that point, no matter whether you're Catholic or not. You're just going to hell. But if it's a venial sin, you'll eventually get to heaven after purgatory. But in any case, you've got to, you've got to cover it. And if you've committed a sin, you've got to go and confess, and you've got to do penance and get absolution and, and get freed of that, or you're, or you're going to be in big trouble. There are no mortal or venial sins. There's only sin. And the soul that sins will die. God is a holy God. He does not tolerate sin at any level. There aren't any big sins and little sins in God's economy. We perceive it that way because we understand that there are greater and lesser consequences for sin in this life. There are some sins you can commit and the world's not going to, your world's not going to come to an end. There are other sins that you can commit that will have catastrophic results. And so we tend to, to, to try to categorize sin. But the scripture says that if we have broken the law in any one point, we have broken the whole law. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, He has become guilty of all. And the wages of sin is death. And so God's holiness will not tolerate any sin whatsoever. Friends, we we can't ever come up to some kind of passing grade through our efforts because God doesn't grade on a curve. It's all or nothing. And so if anyone were to be saved by their own righteousness, it would require, it's not even meaningful to talk about it because it's impossible. 
but it would require not only being born without sin, but it would require from the instant of birth until the instant of death, never committing any sin. Because the first time you stumble, listen, the first time you stumble in any way, there is no penance that you can do that will pay for it in a few hundred or a few thousand years. It is eternal separation from God in hell forever. That's the, that's the penalty. The soul that sins, even once, will die eternally in separation from God. Because He is a holy God. And He will not tolerate sin in His presence. He dwells in unapproachable light. The Scripture refers to Him as a consuming fire. And He requires in His presence absolute perfection. So, do you see the problem? We are totally depraved and can't ever get it right. The law was made to reveal the character of God and it only exposes the reality of that truth that we are sinners. And God is a holy God and will not in any way tolerate sin. What is the remedy? Where is the help for me? How can I be free from this? And the answer is that if there were one who had there was one who had no sin, if there was a man, a human being, who had no sin, but who in his character was, was infinite in his person, was able through his blood, through his death, if he could die in my place, and if he were of such a nature that his person were infinite, so that his death could cover the sins of thousands, millions, even billions, I don't know, but sufficient for every sinner that ever lived. If there were such a one that I could be freed, and that one could take my place. And God says that from the beginning, He had purposed, that in Christ Jesus, there would be that remedy for our sin. We sang about it just a few moments ago. This glorious One who was without sin, born of the Virgin Mary, came into this world, was born without original sin, and lived His life without ever once deviating from the moral perfection of God. He lived without sin. And when John the Baptist saw Him and pointed His finger, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who takes it away. And Jesus Christ, as He lived that sinlessly perfect life, throughout His life, went to the cross by His own choice. He could have called 10,000 angels to set Him free, but He didn't do that. The Roman guard and the Jewish cohort that came to arrest Him when He identified Himself as the Eternal I Am fell back on the ground. They couldn't touch Him. He went by His own choice. He consented to the cross. He endured the cross, despised the shame, and accepted the payment of my sin and took it upon Him so that He would pay the price for my sin. 
And Peter says in his letter, the first chapter, For you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. God forbid that we would ever think that we could somehow atone with such filthy lucre. But you were purchased with the precious blood of a lamb without spot or blemish, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And in Jesus Christ, the Scripture says in First, Second uh, Corinthians, chapter five, He became He who knew no sin became sin for me, for us, that I might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That He would take my sin, and God would give me His righteousness. You see why that's such good news to Paul when he says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the Gospel, a righteous gift from God is revealed. It's unveiled. God will give me His righteousness in place of my filthy rags. I can have His righteousness. What an amazing exchange. And how can I get this gift? Oh, I can't get it by working for it. There's nothing I can do. I've already demonstrated that I have no ability in myself to merit the favor of God. But He is freely giving it. He's offering it. All I must do is believe Him to receive by grace the gift that He is giving. Paul says, I will not nullify the grace of God For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. But I will embrace the the grace of God in Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness that makes me holy in His presence. Listen, friend. There's nothing you or I can do to ever merit God's favor. But He already loves you. That's good news, isn't it? He already loves you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God already loves you, and He has come to you in Jesus Christ, and He has paid the penalty for your sin, and He offers to you the gift of salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is not a result of works that no one should boast. You have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that faith that it accepts that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient before a holy God to to meet the requirement and the penalty of my sin. Paul says in Romans, and John repeats it in his first letter, that Jesus is the propitiation before a holy God for my sin. Do you know what that means? He satisfies the requirement of God. He satisfies the wrath of God. It was poured out on the cross. Jesus took it for me. There is therefore now, Romans 8, 1, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none. I am free from the law and free from sin and 
free from death. And there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ because he has paid that price in full. Friends, we cannot come to righteousness any other way than by having it as a gift on the basis of faith. And if God loves us so much to give us the righteousness of Jesus Christ because we have believed that what He did on the cross was sufficient, do not insult Him. Do not insult Him and nullify that work by thinking there's something you can add to what Jesus has completely done. When He cried on the cross with His very last breath, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai. The interpretation of it is the debt is paid in full. There is nothing more to do. There is nothing to add. We cannot make up anything else. It's done. And your sin, past, present, and future, is under that blood. By faith, you are cleansed and forgiven. And you have peace with God through faith, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that... You see why Paul calls it the good news? Isn't that amazing? That is good news, man. There's nothing you could do, but there's nothing you have to do. He has done it all. He has paid the price. I am free in Him. Oh, people get real worried about that and say, man, if you preach it like that, people think they can just go do whatever they want to do and they're going to be okay. You don't get it. You don't get it. Oh, my friend, when you see what Jesus has done for you and He seals you with His Holy Spirit, I know that He is able to keep what I've committed to Him against that day. My sheep hear My voice and they follow Me. Another they will not follow, but they will follow Me and no one will be able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. Who can separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or nakedness or peril or famine or... What can keep us from the love of God? For if He is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from His love. You, you begin to see all of that and the Holy Spirit comes in and brings you to new life in Jesus Christ and your heart overwhelms with gratitude and praise and adoration to Him. Only people that don't understand the Gospel, only people that, don't, that haven't really got the good news can begin to even think that that uh, that's my free ticket to live however I want. God so changes our heart because of His grace. My friends, I start out by saying that the goal of our instruction is love. How does this truth improve your love life? Let me say, first of all, it ought to make you love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Man, you ought to just overwhelm and just kind of gush out in love for God. 
You know yourself. Look at yourself in the mirror in the morning. You know, you know, I am not perfect. You're not perfect. You're a mess. And so am I. We've got issues. we got baggage. You pick any modern word you want to use for the stuff in our lives that makes us the ugly people that we are. We've got it. And you look in the mirror and you say, what am I going to do with this? And the truth of the matter is that God loves me and it is all under the blood of Jesus. And, and I can come to Him today with nothing standing in the way because He loves me with an everlasting love. Man, that ought to make you just, oh, praise you, God. Glory to your name. I love you so much. What a great God. This is amazing love. That's why Charles Wesley wrote that, that hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Should Die For Me? What incredible love. This, this ought to just fill your heart with love for God. That you don't have to worry. You know, you could have a heart attack before this service is even over. You could have a car accident on the way home and be killed. You could find out next week you have some terminal illness. You, you could, you could not get, you may not get through this day. That's an entire possibility. But what joy it is to know that if you know Jesus, you don't have to worry about a thing. The moment you take your last breath on this planet, you'll suck in the next one of celestial air in the presence of God, and you'll be with Him forever. Nothing can separate you from His love eternally. What joy to know that. What freedom. What peace. And to know that, that you don't have to worry about God clobbering you with some bat along the way because... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He has borne my punishment. You will never have to pay for your sin. He has paid it all. That ought to change your heart toward God, your love life toward God. Man, that's why we love Him. You know, that's what John says. But you know, if we could just get our hands around the truth of the gospel, you know what the truth is? The whole Bible makes sense. We love Him because He first loved us. You see why? <laughs> wow! God loved me and gave His only Son. Now that I get it, what's my response? I love Him! I love Him! And when you love someone, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? You want to please them. You want to, to, to make them happy. You want to spend time with them. Yeah, you don't have to, nobody has to tell you, you gotta read your Bible, you gotta have prayer time, you gotta, it's like, oh, I just can't wait to be with you, Lord, I love you. I love you. Man, what a privilege to be with the lover of my soul. It ought to change your love life with God. It ought to change how we love each other, friends. You see that person sitting next to you? They're a sinner, just like you are. How much grace has God given you? How much forgiveness? How much, how much does God put up with you? Okay? Let's get it in perspective. How much should you put up with a person sitting next to you? How much should you love them? How much should you overlook in their lives? How much should you put under the blood 
Love covers a multitude of sin. How much should you put under the blood? Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 4, Therefore be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, forgiving each other. Do you know that presupposes people are doing you dirty? They're doing wrong things. That presupposes that. Forgiving each other. Why forgive? Because they wronged you. But so what? I know there's a balance to that, but I'm not into balance right now. How many times should you forgive? Not 490. That's just a figure of speech. 70 times 7. Now, Jesus was just saying, more times than you can keep up with, Peter. More times than you can count. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Man, it ought to make us love each other. It ought to make us love each other. When you see the grace of God, you know, our problem is, I did this for you, so you ought to do this for me. And you didn't do this for me, so now I'm mad with you. Because we're not even. God says, you know what? I've wiped the slate clean. I hold nothing against you. Any complaints? Good, I didn't think so. Now, why are you having these demands on your brother or your sister? Why are you keeping score? Why are you playing these games? I, I threw away the book with you. I don't have any score on you anymore. It's under the blood. What's the matter with you? You see? Why we should love each other as God in Christ has forgiven us. And then, friends, this message of grace, of justification by faith, ought to fill us with compassion and with love, and with fervency for those around us who do not understand it. This is good news. There are Protestants who don't get it. There are Evangelicals who don't get it. And there are Roman Catholics who don't get it. And there are pagans who never got it. This is good news. It ought to fill us with compassion. It ought to fill us with concern. We should be motivated by love. Listen, Paul says in Galatians 1, 6-12, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Listen to this. For a different gospel which is really not another. In other words, there is no other gospel. This is not a doctrinal difference. This is the gospel versus what is not the gospel. This is the truth of grace in Jesus versus what is a human religious lie. I I cannot sugarcoat that. Paul does not sugarcoat it. He says it is not another gospel. There are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul and my friends, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to this message we've delivered and the one I've just delivered to you this morning, let him be anathema, a curse cut off from Christ because it's a lie that will take you to hell. 
It is not another gospel. There's no good news in that message. And friends, that ought to break our hearts. It cannot make us arrogant. Oh, I've got the truth and you don't. You're stupid. We're talking about people who will spend a Christless eternity in hell thinking they were okay. They'll stand before the judgment of Christ and hear these horrible words, I never knew you. I never knew you. You were never in my kingdom. You did not have my message. Oh, that God would spare them that. That our hearts would be filled and breaking with love and compassion to proclaim the truth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's a blindness that will cost them eternity. Do you get it? Friends, there's no other way to be saved but through total, complete, final trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. There is no other mediator between God and men. There is no other way to heaven but Him. He is the only one. And anything that adds to His atonement on the cross is anathema. It is not Jesus plus your good works. Jesus plus your your penance. Jesus plus your best efforts. Jesus, it is Jesus alone. And anyone who says anything different is courting with spiritual disaster that leads away from God. I cannot do anything to make up for my sin. Only Jesus. It ought to fill me with love for Him. It ought to fill me with love for you. And it ought to fill me with love for everyone I meet, that they might know the grace of God in Jesus Christ and come to love Him the way I love Him because He has forgiven me and accepted me in the Beloved. And I am secure forever because of what He has done. What He has done. Praise His holy name. We should never be arrogant people. We of all men and women should be the most broken, the most profoundly grateful, the most in love with God, and the most passionate about the gospel. Because it is absolutely free in Jesus Christ. And there's no condemnation for those who have come to know Him. Praise His holy name. I hope that you will go home and and study the Scripture passages I've given you and meditate on them and ask God to give rise in your heart to the glorious exuberance of love and faith that comes from this good news. And that it will change the way we live because we have come to know Him. Father, this morning I pray in Jesus' name that You will open our eyes to the precious truths. Do not let us compromise. Do not ever let us weaken the Gospel. Do not let us try to have a false unity that does not exist where error 
of this magnitude reigns. God, give us grace and compassion. Fill us with your Spirit. Motivate us with your love. And oh, most especially, Lord, may the message of the freedom of grace in Jesus Christ compel us to love you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength and to follow you with all of our being. What else can we do or say in response to your love? We just love you. We just love you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.